So hello and welcome to the Carers Link Lowdown, the podcast for unpaid carers in East Dunbartonshire. My name's Katie and this is the second in our series of podcasts about guardianship. Um, and I'm joined again by Martin Monaghan, who I will I'll ask to just quickly introduce himself again. He gave a big description in the first one, but just in case you haven't listened to that, we'll ask him again to say who he is and what he does. So welcome, Martin. Welcome indeed. Thank you very much. So I'm Martin Monaghan. I'm the head of the Civil Court Department at Caesar and Howie Slisters. And it was our firm that launched the Parent Carers Legal Support, which is Pickles for short. That's the website which has been set up as a contribution towards supporting, informing, guiding parent carers through the process of guardianship. Now, I'm an accredited specialist in family law and in particular incapacity and mental disability law. So I am able to speak about what we're talking about today. So this is the second in the podcast. So I'm moving into the nitty gritty today. So this is a bit more information on the nitty gritties of what has to be done and what you have to deal with in the course of a guardianship file. And what we always start with, as far as that is concerned, is a discussion about money. How do we deal with money. Now, I'm going to be talking about youngsters mostly, but it can be the same for seniors. So if you're talking about your granny, it's just as applicable. But as far as youngsters are concerned, you recall that at age 16, no one's got any powers to deal with a youngster. You have to acquire powers from somewhere to deal with it. Now, you either acquire those powers using a guardianship application to the court, or you can acquire them by certain other means, depending upon the circumstances. We're not talking about power of attorney today because we're satisfying ourselves that the person involved doesn't have capacity to prepare a power of attorney. If you want more detail on that, look at the last one or have a listen to the last one. So where do we go? Sometimes you can exercise limited money powers using the government's Department of Work and Pensions appointee benefit system. That's a DWP appointee. You apply to the government, they do some preliminary checks, they receive some information, and they become satisfied that you are perfectly entitled to deal with this person's state benefits on your behalf. You may already have that in place prior to 16th birthday, but Usually that's after 16. What that means is you take 100% control over the income coming in from the government and you then can put it where you want, as in into whichever account you wish, and you can then control where it goes. Now, our advice is you don't want to have that in your own account mixed up with your own money. It's far, far better from an audit trail perspective to have that in a different account containing only the adult's money. That's a better way of dealing with it because it just avoids the even the slightest whiff of you having done something which isn't appropriate. Now, the reality is all you're going to do is transfer the money out of that account into your own account anyway towards contribution towards digs because after all, we all pay digs at that particular age whether you're incapable or not. But the reality is it keeps it separate and you're able to show that you're not benefiting personally. Now, that's the DWP approach. The other way of dealing unofficially with someone's money is to actually use what we refer to as unofficial access by PIN number, card, internet, or phone access. So in other words, you have an account that you happen to know the access codes to for the internet or phone, or you happen to know the PIN number for the card. In those circumstances, you are still allowed to use those methods of accessing the adult's money, provided you're doing so for the benefit 
of the individual. In other words, it's all fine as long as you're not trying to diddle the person's money. And if you are, on your own head be it, clearly. But it's there to be used on an unofficial basis, which would mean you could continue to deal with things without having to go through all of the palaver of financial guardianship to deal with powers, which I come to in the course of our discussion today. So what's the biggest piece of advice I can give to someone whose youngster is still under 16? That is, make sure you have at least one current account opened up in the name of your youngster. That way, you have a current account which you can use to deal with all of your youngster's money, which is in the name of that youngster, and which you can gain the internet codes, phone codes, PIN numbers, all the rest of it for, so that you can run it. Better still if you have two accounts, because that means you can run one of them yourself, which has all the money coming in, and you can have beside that another account, which is essentially the account which the adult can use themselves, because they may have the ability to use that particular account only to an extent, and that encourages them and facilitates their use of exercising the skills that they are still able to exercise and therefore promoting the skills and benefits they have. That's all part of your obligations as guardian. So some adults use it mostly for gaming sites, potentially. Sometimes it's if they're able to set up quick Amazon purchases using the, the, the fast purchase on Amazon and other things like that, or even just going to the cash machine to pull out a tenner to buy some goodies from the shop. These are all things which you can set up to allow the youngster to do it as long as you're organized enough to make sure the accounts exist before the 16th birthday. If that date is passed, then it's problematic and we come back to another way of dealing with it, which we'll speak to in a minute. Now, <clears throat> another advantage of having the second account is it allows you the security of knowing that any manipulations of your youngster, any potential financial abuse by someone, you restrict how much money goes into it on a weekly basis. You can see where it's going out to, and therefore you can control if you start to see some unusual spending patterns. That way you're continuing to protect, but at the same way, same time, encouraging, promoting, and facilitating the use of that account by your youngster. Now, on a practical level, any spending you carry out in relation to an adult with incapacity, essentially keep a shoebox of receipts, mark it every year, shoebox of receipts, bank statement, use your switch card, I call it switch, not switch anymore, but use your contactless cards, etc. Use them for making payments. So your bank statements will show that you're paying to somebody who it is, and broadly you get an idea of what it's for. For example, if you're spending £10 in Tesco, the chances are that you're buying food or clothes or something, whereas if you get repeated entries for Amazon or gaming websites or bookies sites, pretty good chance not really going to be benefiting the adult there, and that's the sort of thing that would jump out if anyone ever audits your accounts from the Department of Work and Pensions, or indeed, if the council step in and get concerned about any suggestion of you spending money inappropriately. So do it properly, keep the receipts, justify your transactions, use the card where possible, try not to deal in cash. All of these things are just good ways of making sure you won't be challenged unnecessarily for how you deal with things. Now, self-directed support is a quandary at this particular point because self-directed support provided by the state. Sometimes you need financial powers. Sometimes you need welfare powers. 
sometimes you need both. Other times you don't need any powers at all because it's all covered by the council. This discussion is not about self-directed support other than if you are being given a wadge of cash, which you are then using to pay people personally, then you require financial guardianship powers to deal with that. And that's absolutely key. You might already have self-directed support for dealing with your youngster. Whether you need to then acquire guardianship powers to continue that self-directed support simply depends upon what type you're using. And as I said, it's simpler to ask myself or one of my colleagues, and we would give you the answer within seconds. But if you've got a wadge of money and you are physically paying it out, that absolutely requires financial powers. Now, the reason why I'm talking about all those potential options for dealing with money and practicalities for dealing with money without the need for guardianship powers are, if you have to go for financial powers, that comes along with a set of obligations. You're expected to have a degree of bookkeeping. You're expected to produce accounts at the end of each year to be approved. And there's an ongoing cost potentially, not only in relation to the Office of the Public Guardian, who are the bosses keeping an eye on you. You have to pay for them to look at your, your books often, but not always. But you also have to pay an insurance policy to protect the young adult from you diddling the finances. Usually that bondification, as it's called, an insurance policy is put in place by the court, but it's not always. That is a bit of a palaver. We say to people, you don't want financial powers unless you really need to have to have financial powers because A, you're not supposed to get powers unless you need them, and B, it is a hassle. If you can do it any easier way, it's called minimum intervention, a lesser way of dealing with finances, then everyone wants you to do that. The law wants you to do it. The council, the office of the public guardian, and the court want you to do it. So if you have a thousand pounds in a bank account, you've got the pin number and card, you don't need financial powers. You just continue to run that with a pin number and card. If you had 25,000 pounds in the bank, then you're getting to the point where it's possibly worthwhile managing that 25,000 pounds by way of investing it, as opposed to simply earning interest on it. And that's when people would start asking questions about actually you might perhaps need financial powers now. But everything depends and it's all about degree and proportionality and you simply ask and the solicitor will tell. Now, broadly speaking, it's the 16th birthday when you want to start applying for all this and ideally speak to someone in about 15 and a quarter because of various delays involved. That's when we want to get up and running in relation to dealing with the nitty gritties of the application itself. So, as I said, when do you apply? Round about the 15 and, a, 15 and a quarter is the best time to deal with it. That way you've got everything in place up and running to deal with it. And this is what we're going to talk about, the absolute details of how we go about it and what the court's going to be looking for. First of all, who can't apply for guardianship? Welfare guardianship, you're only going to be prohibited from being a welfare guardian for someone if you've got a series of nasty previous convictions or some description. If you've got a one-off breach of the peace or something like that, or you once were involved with road traffic stuff that wasn't just fixed penalty, then that's really not going to be held against you unless there's a particularly good reason. But it's big nasty things that the court will prevent you from being a welfare guardian. So you're required to declare whether you've been in trouble with the police before. 
produce disclosure, sometimes we have to follow that up by actually acquiring a copy of any previous conviction report from the police, which is always available to anybody to ask, as long as it's they're, they're asking for their own documentation. I acquire a mandate from the client. The client authorizes me to acquire that from the police, and I get a copy of your previous convictions if you've got any. That's how it would work. Now, financial guardianship. You won't be allowed to be a financial guardian if you are currently bankrupt. So if you're currently bankrupt, you can't be a financial guardian. You can be a welfare guardian, but you just can't be a financial guardian. And if during the course of the guardianship powers, you are made bankrupt, then you automatically lose your financial powers. Okay. Now, if you've been bankrupt in the past, that does not prevent you from being a financial guardian for somebody else, but you do need to provide details so the court can be aware of what happened, what the circumstances were, and whether that's something which would prohibit you from being involved. Okay. A common example we have with our clients are a spousal separation, perhaps Mr. runs up an awful lot of credit card debt. Mrs. doesn't find out about it. Miss, Mr. then disappears off the scene, and Mrs. is left with this massive great credit card debt, which is either joint or was in the name of Mrs., and she ends up having to go down the bankruptcy route. That's a set of circumstances which led to that. That's something which the court would be sympathetic with and would take that into account. You can also come on to guardianships jointly with other people. And if it's a case of one might have a previous conviction, one might be bankrupt, you can work together. And that way you can cover the concerns by the other person having no concerns, if you see what I mean. So you work together to tick the necessary boxes as far as the court is concerned. Now, the actual process. Lawyers are governed by the Law Society of Scotland and in turn by, uh, by Parliament beyond that, and therefore we require to jump through certain hoops. Identification, everyone's a money laundering terrorist until they prove otherwise as far as the government's concerned, so we have to go through identification processes. We can either do that by internet web, internet Equifax searches, which produce information for us, or we can have good old-fashioned paper identification in our offices, or as more as often the case these days, what we do is we have emails, information is emailed to us. We then run a video call and the person holds up the information, the video call, and that can often be sufficient as well. Really, it's down to having paper identification. And that means something that's come out in the Royal Mail by post. I know we're in the land of everything by internet, but it's always a good idea to have something which always comes out by post. That way, when you're dealing with identification for lawyers or anybody else, you don't have to jump through unnecessary hoops. You've actually got the document. It's the hardest thing for us to get clients to organize. The number of times we have to say to clients, go to the bank. When you're in the bank, punch in your number, get the bank to print off a copy of your bank statement with your address on it, whack it with the rubber thumper thing they do when you're banking checks, and you bring that to us because that counts as ID far better if you've already got it because identification documents in the Royal Mail expire after about three months. So usually you've got to have them fairly recently. Photo ID is dead easy these days because usually everyone's got either a bus pass, a passport or a driving license. And those are what, what is required. And if you don't happen to have photo ID, then all we do is we double up on all sorts of other identification for you. And if you live abroad, then we have to do extra identification checks to be satisfied that you are able to do that you are able to tick our boxes. And just because you live abroad doesn't mean you can't be a welfare or financial guardian in the UK. 
the world's a phone call, an email, internet, Zoom call away. It's not a problem and everyone's quite happy to do it. So what will the lawyers ask you to do? In order to get legal aid granted, and I'll come to legal aid in a minute, we have to have proof of incapacity and we have to have proof that you're a decent spud and that you're able to do the job. Now, that's usually your a family member just telling me that, in which case I prepare a statement and that goes to the legal aid board. Alternatively, you might have a set of minutes of a meeting which suggests guardianship, or you might have spoken with a social worker who will tell me that, or you might have a letter from a doctor who says that. Now, you don't need to go away and get any of that. You've either got it or you haven't, and we can follow it up, as I said, by making the necessary phone calls chatting with whoever it is that's responsible, dealing with the email trail, and we get what's required for the purpose of applying for legal aid. Now, legal aid itself is usually granted. Sometimes you get it in a day. Sometimes it's about 10 days. It just depends on what's going on within the computer system of the legal aid board at the time, but it comes through very, very rapidly compared to other forms of legal aid when you're dealing with guardianship for welfare powers or which include welfare powers. Once the legal aid's granted, we proceed to draft the court papers, and they usually run to between five and ten pages. We draft them up, client approves them, checks them out, they've spelled everyone's address correctly, all the usual things that go on, and we've got all the interrelationships and the family together. And once that's all been approved, we are in a position to put ourselves into the queue for the mental health officer. Now, the mental health officer is the biggest delaying factor in welfare guardianships at this time. That's the specialist social worker who's appointed by the council to report on guardianships. The delay is enormous, depending upon which part of the world you happen to live in. Your area, seven, eight months if you're lucky. It just depends what's going on at the time and what resources are being applied. And I'm afraid to say that resources applied to guardianships are not as good as they should be because the councils simply take the view that other things have a greater priority and it's very difficult to convince them otherwise, especially because whilst they will tell you, oh yeah, there's a massive delay, eight months, nine months, 10 months, 12 months, some councils are 20 odd months, if it's urgent, we'll do it really quickly for you. And that's true. They will do it really quickly for you if it's urgent. The problem is they determine what's urgent, not you. And they, in their eyes, urgent, for example, is stuck in a hospital ward or some absolutely death-defying immediacy required because the adult's going to do something to themselves. Everybody else, which is for the most part parents with young children, are, you're getting on fine. We'll get around to you. I'm afraid that's why you have to wait. In any event, once we get out the end of the queue and the mental health officer's available, that person will prepare a report on your abilities, and that's to approve you to say you're able to do the job. Now, of course, you're able to do the job because you've been doing it for the last 16 years, but someone needs to say that you are able to do the job. We also acquire two medical reports, not usually from GPs these days because apart from anything else, you can never get a GP, and they're also not particularly responsive for the most part, which is, I know it's a broad generality, but that's our experience. So what we do is we've got a team of psychiatrists who we go directly to and acquire psychiatric reports from two doctors, and they deal with that. Now, the doctors will either come out face-to-face -face or they'll deal with it by Zoom call. It depends on the doctor and it depends upon the nature of the individual themselves. For example, some youngsters are not going to be able to deal with a Zoom call or would be better face-to-face or their borderline capacity, which would require a face-to-face -face assessment. It's all down to the doctors. But especially during the, the lockdown and whatnot, it was accepted that you could do it by video. And thus far, 
nobody's going back on that in the land of guardianship just now. Although I appreciate that the recommended course of action from the Mental Welfare Commission is a face-to-face, and that's certainly my preference. It's just not always possible all of the time. In the course of this process, we check all the assets of the individual, work out what there is, deal with everything that's in place. If it's your granny you're looking for and the granny owns a house, we'd be looking into title deed information to make sure we knew what was going on and we would have all of that together. Now, once we have all of our reports, we're then in a position to send it all off to the court and the court will process it usually within about three or four weeks initially. Some courts take longer. Uh, Glasgow, for example, might take a bit longer than that. Uh, Airdrie, fairly rapid. They will then get it back to you. And what they do is they send us the papers, they pick a hearing date, which allows us to deliver copies of the court papers to all people that are obliged to receive them in terms of the legal rules. And that's usually family members below the adult, across from the adult, and up from the adult. So if it's a youngster, they wouldn't have any children, so there'd be nobody below. It'd be all their brothers and sisters, if there were any, and it'd be their mum and dad. Again, there are exceptions to that, depending upon what's going on in the family dynamic. But generally speaking, that's what's required. So everyone gets told about it. Everyone is told when the court calling is. And if anyone has a problem with it, they object by contacting the court, in which case we deal with an opposed guardianship and we simply deal with whichever was going on. But by and large, nobody opposes, nobody objects. The sheriff will either call the case in an open court where we're physically there, or we'll deal with it by way of a WebEx call, by way of video call, or we'll deal with it by way of a phone call, or won't have any hearing at all because we've delivered all the paperwork in writing and the sheriff just reads it and says, no, I'm happy to do this without a discussion, and it's all granted, and the pieces of paper are issued saying, you have the power. Now, that's the end of the process for welfare powers because you're granted a certificate, which comes out usually about two weeks after that. Currently, it's called a special measure certificate because of the COVID rules and how we're dealing with things. Before then, it was simply a power certificate. One of them's a piece of paper you get with a big red ink stamp, and the current one's simply an online version which has a watermark through it, which we produce to you by way of email and whatnot. But that's essentially your ticket to ride. That's showing that you have the power to deal with something. If you have financial powers, you've got a few more hoops to jump through, and it takes probably another six or seven weeks to get through, but more of that in a later podcast. Finally, a reminder about the costs of it all. Legal aid is available. Worst case is you don't qualify for the bit before legal aid is granted, which might cost you 500 quid or 750 quid plus that, depending upon whether it's just you or someone else applying. But as long as you're looking for welfare, everybody qualifies for the remainder of legal aid, which I call in-court legal aid, and that's free for everybody, regardless of how much money you've got. So you could be a gazillionaire, you would still get the second part free, but you just have to pay for the first part. So for guardianship, which includes welfare powers, worst case for one applicant is 500 quid plus fat post now at least. That's the worst case. Best case is nada, no cost, entirely covered. Ask one of the solicitors, ask me, ask my colleagues at Caesar and Howie, we'll be able to answer that question in under 30 seconds for you, assuming you have the figures to hand to tell us. If you have to pay something for guardianship, it's usually only if you're looking for only financial powers. For some reason, you choose to look only for financial powers. And if you're doing that, the Legal Aid Board system says it's 100% means tested. So at that point, if you're a gazillionaire, 
you're having to pay it privately in full, and that can easily be £8,000 or more, depending upon what's happening. But as I said, the vast majority of people are doing financial alongside welfare, in which case it's either 100% free or there's simply a small contribution. Conversation with any solicitor, me and my colleagues will answer that very quickly indeed. And that is our end of my podcast number two for you. Thank you very much, Martin. There's, there's lots of top tips in there. I think uh, the one that, that struck me was that the, the having two bank accounts before the person is 16. I think that's something people might not often think about. They might just think, oh, I'll wait till they're 16 and get a bank account. But how, that, that tip there to, to make sure you've got at least one and, and possibly two, I think, is a, is a really good one. Um, and I hope people listening will will hear that in time. <laughs> So uh, the other thing, actually, that 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 struck me, I mean, the, the mental health officer thing. So, and I, and it's something we did speak about in in the last podcast. But just to reassure people that you know, if if you don't do it before sixteen, and 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 you're you're left without guardianship, and you, I think you were quite clear in the last podcast that you could probably just carry on as normal. And you spoke there about the unofficial um, ways of managing money and things like that. But you know, if if you do miss the the sixteen cut off um i just just reassure people i think yeah no everything basically come the 16th birthday everything happens the same way as the 15th birthday it simply continues everyone will deal with you as before you will continue to do what you always did you will simply be encouraged cajoled maneuvered towards making sure you apply for this power but everyone will deal with things the way they did before especially in the knowledge that you're going to deal with it it only becomes a problem if there becomes a problem. In other words, if the local authority or somebody else says, no, hold on a minute, we have an issue here that we have to deal with, that's when it becomes a problem. And it's never for basic things because your child will always be treated. Your child will always be looked after. It's only when we get to the more complicated things that people will start to rail against you and say, no, we'll not be doing that until you've got powers. Do you have powers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think let's just make that clear for people. Um, and I think the, the other thing that um, maybe kind of I was thinking about was um, benefits and things like that. So, again, that's that whole finance that will would someone be able to apply for benefits on behalf of the, the, the person that's not got capacity? So, for example, if it was an older person, would they still be with the person who has guardianship be allowed to apply for attendance allowance or something like that? Is that? That. Yes, they're, they're, they're actually independent of each other. You can apply for any benefit on behalf of someone else entirely independently of guardianship. You don't right. need guardianship to do that. You can become the appointee just now without any guardianship, and that's what you should do because that's the minimum intervention. You only need to then apply for guardianship if you're having to do more complicated things, welfare powers, things of that description, or if you're having to do complicated financial things, then you become financial guardianship. Mm -hmm. or you do financial guardianship and become the financial guardian. And that trumps the appointee. So you become the appointee by virtue of being the financial guardian. But you start with the appointee person and anybody can do that. And that's the first thing we tell people to do as soon as we have a discussion with them. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's why, you know, I think listening to you that made me realize that there are questions that someone might struggle with, but you or another solicitor will be able to answer really quickly. So it's always, I think, you know, one of the questions we asked in the in the first uh, episode was, do I need a solicitor? Um, and I think listening to you this afternoon, 
because we're recording in the afternoon, um, says says to me, yes, get a solicitor involved and save yourself a lot a lot of worry. So, uh, I, absolutely, the old advert campaign was great. Be back when I was young. It's never too early to call your solicitor. <laughs> so, um, yes, and I think what we're, uh, uh, in the the notes for the for the podcast, I'll put the contact detail. Well, I'll put the web address for. Cesar Howie and and also um, what I forgot to mention last time is Carers Link does actually have an arrangement for um, a kind of a, a one one phone call for someone who's looking for not not ongoing support but you know to find out about le- legal advice or information about uh, guardianship then then we can also help very briefly with that just point you in the right direction really that's what that's about so. We're coming to the end now. Uh, thank you very much, Martin, for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us again. Um, the next episode is the final one, um, and it's kind of, okay, so I've got guardianship, what happens now? Um, and we will be joined by a parent carer who has been through the process um, and will can give you a, you know, the, the other side, the, the person the person applying's viewpoint. Um, and the Martin will be here as well to answer or to talk about the, any final things about what you need to do once you have guardianship. So that will be the final in our short series of podcasts. Um, and that's it for today. Um, I hope you found that useful. I, I certainly learned a lot. That, again, I always learn a lot in these podcasts. Um, so thank you, Martin. Uh, thank you for listening. And we will hopefully speak to you again soon.